Hello, salam, and welcome to another episode of the Ajam Podcast. I am your host, Rustin, and today we have our co-host, Ali Karjuravari. Welcome, Ali. Hey, everybody. Great to have you all with us today. We're lucky to introduce Dr. Kelly Hammond, who is the Assistant Professor of East Asian History in the Department of History at the University of Arkansas. She received her PhD from Georgetown University in 2015, and her first book, which just came out this September of 2020, is called China's Muslims and Japan's Empire, Centering Islam in World War II, published with University of North Carolina Press in their Islamic Civilization and Muslim Network series. So we're really happy to welcome Dr. Hammond today to talk to us about her new book. Welcome. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity to speak with both of you. I'm really looking forward to it. Kelly, I'm so excited to have this conversation. Back in March, I believe it was March, right? Where Ali was actually trying to organize a Islam in China conference. And we were supposed to meet there and possibly do this recording there. But sadly, due to COVID, the conference was postponed. But the good news is now we can talk about your book, which has recently been published. So now I guess we can do the, the post-game take on the book now that it's been completed. Your book focuses on Imperial Japan's courting of Sino-Muslims during World War II. Through various programs, the Japanese occupying forces hope to present themselves as protectors of Islam in a bid to attract the support of Sino-Muslims and to weaken the Chinese nationalist movement. So before we even get started... A lot of our listeners are coming from Middle East history or a general interest in Middle East, and they may not be aware of the history of Islam in China, it being such a long and varied history. So before we get started, could you just give us a quick rundown of what are the communities you're focusing in your book? Who were they? Where were they located in China historically? And what was their relationship to the Qing state and the Republic of China? It's good to sort of set the stage in this regard because there are a lot of different groups that are Muslims in China. And I specifically focus on a group of people that are sometimes called Chinese Muslims or Sino-Muslims, and they're designated by the People's Republic of China as Hui or Huizu. And so that's the sort of ethnic moniker that they're given by the state. Now, these people have been in China for a long time. There have been Muslims that have been traveling to China since the 8th century. But the main community arrived in the 13th century when the Mongols, the Mongols were distrustful of Han Chinese bureaucrats. So they brought large communities of bureaucrats from Central Asia in order to run their bureaucracy and their administration. And then those people intermarried with Han Chinese women and retained their faith in Islam, but ethnically they may appear to look Chinese. They speak Chinese as their primary language, but often read either Arabic or Persian. So it's an interesting community, which is distinguished from some of the other Muslim minorities, such as the Uyghurs, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, and the Kazakhs, who live closer to Central Asia. And just to add to that, I think Sino-Muslims are sort of urban minorities. A lot of them are based in many big cities. You can find communities of Sino-Muslims all across China. And the majority of them are in southern China, in Yunnan province, or up in the northeast. If I could just ask a quick follow-up on that question. After the breakup of the Qing Empire, you mentioned that a lot of them were involved with the Mongols. So were a lot of them elites? 
No, that's a pretty wide spectrum in the socioeconomic spectrum. A lot of Muslims in China actually acted as sort of intermediaries between the Qing state and the people that lived in the peripheries. So there's a number of very prominent and important Muslim families that appear in the sort of 18th and 19th century that either fight for the Qing or fight against the Qing, depending on which side they're on. And they become pretty prominent players in 20th century Chinese politics. But the communities vary widely across the sort of socioeconomic spectrum. Before I jump into World War II, I just kind of wanted to get a, a general understanding of what was happening in the early 20th century with the Hui people. I'm sure like many other minority groups, they were highly invested into the political developments of the time and the national sort of awakenings that were happening all across the world. But where did Chinese Muslims, in particular the Hui people, how did they fit within this Chinese national awakening? Were they affiliated as Qing royalists? Were they supporters of a Chinese national state? And if so, if there was any sort of disagreement between community members, how did that play out in, inside the community itself? Like you mentioned, people around the world were sort of having this national awakening during this time. And in 1911, after the Qing dynasty sort of dissolved, one of the main goals of the new Republican government was to keep the territorial integrity of the Qing empire intact. But they kind of had a lot of false promises about this new sort of ethno-political state that they wanted to make. And so quickly the state sort of began to crumble. And during that time period, there were obviously other interests that were supporting and fomenting dissent or allowing these communities to interact with other players, such as the Russians obviously were big players in fomenting dissent among Muslims in China. And one of the main points that I'm trying to make in my book is that their differences were as big within their religious community as in their political ones. So there were certain Muslims that were interested in joining up with the nationalists and being a part of a new vision for a nationalist China. And there were others that were very influenced by reform movements in the Middle East at the time. And so there was a lot of variety of visions for what a Chinese Muslim future would look like that competed with each other during this period. So I think it's important to sort of understand that politically there was a lot of intellectual curiosity about what was going on in Central Asia and the Middle East. And connecting with those people was something that people living in Egypt, especially, were very interested in doing. And this is where the Japanese enter into the story. <laughs> Just to continue with the story then, I mean, recently there's been some really amazing work being produced on Japanese relations with ethnic and religious minorities in China during World War II. And as part of their ability to successfully occupy the country. So one of the things that I'm curious about is what specifically interested the Japanese forces in the Sino-Muslims? What could they offer the Japanese forces? How did they fit into the political objectives of the Japanese? And in general, if you could give a lay of the land as to what were the objectives of the communists, the nationalists, and how did the Sino-Muslims fit into these different groups and why did they end up aligning with the Japanese? First of all, one of the ways that the Japanese were able to sort of insert themselves into this conversation was that many Chinese Muslims saw the sort of hollowness of the nationalist ethno-national policies. They really did not buy it. That's not saying that all of them didn't, because there were a number of very prominent Muslims 
that bought into nationalist framing of the ethnicity questions in the 1920s and 30s. The communists, for their part, didn't really have that much of an ethno-nationalist policy in that time. After 1927, with the purge of the Communist Party, they sort of moved to the countryside, and they didn't really come in contact with Muslim communities until after the Long March, when they had to retreat up to northwest China. And so it wasn't really until like 1935 that they had to start thinking about these types of questions. So... I think that the Japanese kind of saw an opportunity. During this time, people were just looking for benefactors to implement their own reform policies. The communists really didn't have the ability to do that at the time. The nationalists were often seen as not good allies or not good supporters. One of the things I'm trying to show in my book is that nationalist policy was actually oftentimes a reaction to successes that the Japanese were having working with these communities. So they needed benefactors and they needed people to implement changes within their community. And the Japanese, and in some cases, the Soviet Union were there and willing to help. So they kind of saw a space and inserted themselves into it. As you mentioned in your previous answer, Sino-Muslims connecting to a larger sort of Muslim reform movement, cultural reform in Central Asia and the Middle East, were the Japanese able to really provide any sort of connection to this global marketplace of ideas? Or what exactly were the Japanese able to provide in terms of these objectives of Sino-Muslim elites? I think there are two sort of distinct things that they were able to do. And one of them was that they were able to provide funding to build schools. They funded a Muslim women's school in Beijing, which had tried to get off the ground in the 1920s, but had failed. They funded a number of different schools that perhaps would not have gotten funding before that. Another thing that they did was they built a mosque in Tokyo in 1938 and invited dignitaries from all over the world, including the Middle East and North Africa, to the opening of this mosque. And at the opening of the mosque, there were a number of Muslims from China that were there. So there are conversations going on in this sort of imperial capital. It becomes this locus for this transnational community of Muslims to gather and interact and talk with one another over the course of a couple of weeks. Another thing that the Japanese did was they funded things like a Hajj pilgrimage by a number of Chinese Muslims. So five Muslims from China in 1938, 1939 traveled to Mecca to perform Hajj. And, you know, when they were there, they actually had an audience with, I guess it would be King Saad at the time, and met with like a number of prominent Saudi royals and essentially were trying to help the Japanese create diplomatic relationships with the Middle East. So in a sense, that role of being intermediaries that they had even in the Qing period continues for the Japanese. The Japanese are using them as that. Yeah, I think that that's a good way to think about it. I think the Japanese very quickly understood, we can call it cultural capital, that these Sino-Muslims had and their value to their imperial project, not only within the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere or within East Asia, but also connecting to larger communities of Muslims around the world. I really want to go back to the education question too, but I also wanted to ask on the Japanese side, I mean, the academic study of Islam in Japan, it has really old roots. It rivals German Orientalism in terms of its depth. And you talk about in the book about how sort of it eventually comes into the service of the empire. So what's the role of the Japanese academic study of Islam in this? 
as I talk about in the book, there is a long and important trajectory of the study of Islam in Japan. And because oftentimes Japanese academics only write in Japanese, it can be quite insular. But one of the things that is sort of interesting about it is that many of the men who started studying Islam and became interested in Islam were imperial officials who were working in China. And they came to know and came to understand Islam through their interaction with Muslims on the Chinese mainland starting in the late 19th century. And then they would go back to Japan and establish these educational centers. Some of them converted, not many, but a couple of them converted to Islam. And as the sort of intellectual projects that these people are working on, because, you know, they're collecting a lot of data, they're making these people legible. As the Japanese empire begins to expand, their services become more and more valuable. So these two things come together in the establishment of a number of organizations by the Japanese army that are meant to sort of make Islam understandable to the Japanese military in these places that they're conquering and trying to see the value of Muslims. This is really fascinating in the sense that we've seen this in terms of how the British Empire or the French did it, and how in the process of what European powers were doing in terms of their use of the academic study of Islam is that they're also reifying religion, race, ethnicity. Is that also what's happening here? Like, especially because religion and the category, like it works in such a different way in East Asia, right? I think that that's a good observation. I think as the Japanese empire is growing, they need to figure out who all these people are that are coming under their control. And understanding them through their religious beliefs is a sort of easy way to parse out some of these different categories because places in Southeast Asia that are going to come under their control are also going to have a large number of Muslims, such as the Dutch East Indies, which is the place with the largest number of Muslims in the world, the Philippines with their Muslim populations, known as the Moro, as well in Burma and other places. So they're sort of trying to make Muslims legible and understandable to not only the the army itself or the military itself, but to Japanese subjects back on the home islands so that they can understand who these new people are that are being included into their empire. And they're not only doing this with Muslims. You know, my book is specifically about Islam, but they're doing this with Buddhists and creating these large transnational Buddhist networks as well. It's a well-thought-out plan, and it's meant to create a long-lasting empire. One of the things that I have focused mostly on the Russian case, but the importance of education and the curriculums within the Muslim communities and the reform of Muslim schools under these different imperial powers, such as the Russians and the British. In the case of the Japanese, how do they come to influence the curriculums of Muslim schools in China? And what sorts of courses and sorts of ideology were kind of being introduced through these alignments of the Japanese imperial project and, let's say, Muslim cultural reform? I think this is where the Japanese empire actually received the most pushback on their policies and one where it was really a sort of policy of concession and appeasement. It was more of like a carrot and stick. So essentially they would fund a school and allow whoever was running the school to implement the sort of curriculum that they wanted. And as you can see in my book, I use a couple of different case studies from different schools and the curriculums were all very different, but they had to teach Japanese in these schools. And depending on where the schools were, they would receive more pushback on the amount of Japanese classes being taught in school. 
Now, the carrot dangling in front of that was that if you reached a certain level of proficiency in Japanese, you could go and study in Tokyo, which, I mean, why wouldn't anyone would want to do that, right? Like, it's a pretty awesome place to go and place to study. And then in Tokyo, when these Muslims from China were studying there, there were Muslims from all over the empire. And I guess the end goal would have been for them to not communicate in Chinese and not communicate in Arabic, but to communicate primarily in Japanese. They were active in attempting to create a large transnational network of Japanese speaking Muslims through the education system. So this is obviously a long range plan that ended when they lost the war, but important to sort of consider what some of the implications of this policy would have been. I'm familiar with like in the 19th century with the Russo-Japanese wars that among a lot of Muslim reformists, there's this love of Japan as an anti-Western power. So is anybody like building on that? Where they're inserting themselves is they're saying we're anti-Western and we're also anti-Soviet. And so for people who are Muslims who are averse to communism and also averse to Western imperialism, which is a large number of Muslims in that time period, it does seem like a space that the Japanese can fill. I'm not talking as an apologist for the Japanese empire, but I think that we need to recognize how appealing having a benefactor that was both anti-Western and anti-communist would have been to a large segment of Muslims in East Asia and Southeast Asia in the mid-20th century. I mentioned this before when we're talking about this international network. And when I think about networks, I also think about markets, right? So you mentioned that the Japanese empire saw the possibility of the creation of a new type of consumer. And I'm just curious what you mean by that. What sort of consumer were they trying to create and why were Sino-Muslims a good candidate for it? This is this sort of idea of like the third way. The Japanese were inserting themselves between the Soviets and Western markets. And I think that they, especially after the Great Depression, were looking for places to sell and peddle all of their trinkets and stuff that they were producing. And they saw Western markets as being saturated. So they decided that they could make connections, diplomatic first, and then commercial connections with places where they would have to show consumers who were mostly Muslims what sort of things to buy. And this is where places like North Africa with selling tea to Moroccans in North Africa and creating commercial relationships with places like Afghanistan becomes an important part of this story. They're importing commercial goods and exporting raw materials that are helping them with their military campaigns from these places. So I think just trying to sort of understand the importance of the Japanese empire in valuing Muslims as consumers in the early 20th century is something that has been overlooked in the past. Building on that, because you mentioned the other Axis powers, how do they differ or how are they similar to the other Axis powers approach to Muslims? I know you talk about the example of Italy in the book, right? Yeah, there are similarities and there are differences. And the Italian experience in North Africa was extremely brutal and not a great experience for people living in Libya or Ethiopia or other parts of North Africa. I think that the Japanese were interested in what their Axis allies were doing and they looked to not only Mussolini, but also to Hitler and his relationship 
with countries in the Middle East and sort of how he was currying favors to people like the Mufti of Jerusalem and all of those important figures in the Second World War. But I think that the Japanese approach varied mostly because they weren't white. There was this sort of anti-Western imperialist aspect to it. And they were able to present themselves more easily as not a bad power. But they definitely like traded ideas and looked towards the Italians and the Germans and what they were doing in North Africa and in the Middle East. So I think that that's important to acknowledge also. Could you actually then, because you have this fascinating example of Afghanistan, so could, could you talk about how the Japanese Empire and the, and the Nazis, their efforts in Afghanistan, specifically how they used their own versions of history to, to gain support? So Afghanistan becomes this sort of partial case study in my book because it's this space where Nazi interests and Japanese interests overlap and converge that no one's really ever talked about before. And I think that the the ways that they were able to connect to this place that neither the Nazis or the Japanese had any sort of diplomatic relationship with Afghanistan before the 1930s, although the Germans had been interested in it for a while and the Japanese were sort of curious and sending mostly spies out to sort of check out what was going on in this very important geopolitical place. So the way that they had to connect themselves to this space was different. And the Nazis did it through the sort of creation or valorization of this idea of the Aryan race and that Afghanistan being the progenitor or place of where the Aryans came from. And the Japanese actually did it through a connection to a pre-Islamic Afghanistan and to their Buddhist connections and their Buddhist past. So both of them are making their connections to modern day Afghanistan through a pre-Islamic past that is constructed and manipulated in order to maintain a relationship on the ground in the 1930s and 1940s. So it's pretty fascinating stuff. The Japanese did provide a lot of intelligence to the Germans about what was going on in Afghanistan, especially after they got kicked out of there. Kelly, this might sound like a redundant question now because we've given so many different examples of different sorts of programs from educational curricula to building of mosques. But I was wondering if you can talk in some detail about some of these different programs sponsored by the Japanese. More importantly, if you've highlighted any sort of specific individuals who participated in these programs and what they gained from them. Yeah. The best and most vibrant example of this is this instance of this group of five Sino-Muslims going on a Japanese-sponsored Hajj and the political implications and ramifications of this Hajj. And had it been a year later, it probably would not have been able to happen because it happens in late 1938, early 1939. So war has already broken out in China between the Chinese and the Japanese, but World War II has not started yet in Europe. And so there's this sort of window of opportunity for this Japanese-sponsored Hajj. The men face all kinds of obstacles performing the Hajj. They have the British, who are supposed to issue them Hajj visas in Shanghai, obviously refuse because they're affiliated with the Japanese. And in the end, what they end up doing is they end up getting passage on an Italian ship and with guidance of their tour guide or the, the person who helps them book their Hajj, 
tells them this is kind of in your hands now, but I would suggest that you don't get off the boat in places that are under British control. Well, the boat stops in Hong Kong, Singapore, Colombo, and, you know, and in India. And so that's, those are all places that are under British control at the time. So they have a kind of an arduous journey. They encounter the Chinese nationalist security apparatus that has well-established links all the way into India at this time, which is something so fascinating. And then they end up in Eritrea because it's obviously an Italian colony at the time. And they spend a couple days in Eritrea and they think it's totally wild and totally wacky. And then from Eritrea, they book a boat across the Red Sea to perform their Hajj. I came to this story because it's a memoir that one of these men writes about his experience. And it's also a sort of a denial of his affiliation with the Japanese empire in a sort of interesting way. But the majority of the story isn't actually the performance of the Hajj. It's like getting from North China to Eritrea and like spending all the time doing that. So it's a really interesting adventure that these guys go on. And we sort of really feel the daily life of what it would be like to perform Hajj in the 1930s and 40s. And the main point was that they were there to help the Japanese establish diplomatic relations with the Saudis who were hoping that through that they would be able to drill for an oil in Saudi Arabia. The Americans and the British obviously said no to that. And that led the Japanese policymakers and planners to start looking towards the Dutch East Indies as a place where they could acquire oil from. Do you have a sense of the relationship of these Sino-Muslims who were in the service of the empire with those Sino-Muslims who were against the empire? And even once they're going into Southeast Asia, so dealing with the Muslims of Southeast Asia, who probably didn't have a very positive, to put it lightly, approach towards the Japanese empire. There was definitely contention and fighting, especially out in Western China that was nominally under nationalist control at the time. The relationships are fraught and they're, they recognize that it's a strange time and that there is a war going on and that people are trying to sort of ensure that they're not killed by the Japanese or not killed by the Soviets or not killed by the Chinese communists. But I think that these relationships are fraught and a lot of the ways that they interact with one another are going to carry over into the post-war era. All these different schemes and projects and programs make me want to ask the question of, <laughs> did it work? Were any of these programs successful and how so? How successful were the Japanese in courting Sino-Muslims to, let's say, accomplishing the objective goals of the empire? We'll never know, right? Because the Japanese lost. But I think the enduring legacy of these policies is that a lot of them were actually used or appropriated by the Chinese nationalists and the Chinese communists. And when the Chinese communists went into places like Ningxia and Xinjiang in the 1950s, they also needed to make concessions to the people that were living there. You know, it wasn't just a sort of cakewalk into Xinjiang. So I think it's more in the ways that the Chinese communists and the Chinese nationalists learned and appropriated from what the Japanese were doing in that time period that shows us some of the enduring legacies of how these policies worked. That's a really good segue into the memory and you said the legacy of this collaboration. So when... The war is over and the communists kind of consolidate power. 
how do they remember this collaboration between the Sino-Muslims and the Japanese? Did they come to any of these communities and be like, uh-huh, yeah, okay, like I, I, my memory is longer than 10 years. Like what did they exactly say and do? There's two different sort of approaches. One of them was like the Japanese, the Chinese communists quickly realized the value of having this well-connected network to an international community. A number of Sino-Muslim collaborators were actually pardoned right after the war and joined the Communist Party and were important in sort of propagating the ideals that communism and Islam could exist together. A number of them also because of their diplomatic skills and their Arabic language skills, would go to travel to places like the Bandung Conference or the World Muslim Conference in Karachi in 1951 to help the Chinese communists act as translators and to also do the same thing that they were doing for the Japanese to show that the communists were you know, benevolent supporters of Islam in that period. And then after the, the loss of the Chinese Civil War, there was about... 20,000 or so Sino-Muslims that made their way to Taiwan with the support of the nationalist government. And uh, the nationalists also, the, one of the first things that they did was establish a Chinese Muslim association on the island of Taiwan. Actually, it was before their defeat. And then they built and constructed a huge mosque in Taipei in 1958. And again, in taking a page out of the Japanese playbook, invited Muslim dignitaries from around Southeast Asia and the world to attend the sort of opening celebrations of this mosque. There's a, an anthropologist named Drew Gladney who's said this before, that Muslims in China, proportional to their size in the population, have sort of always been utilized because of their value and connections to Muslims around the world. And so how does that play out now? In, in today's situation? Today's a little different. I think things have sort of shifted away. And I think that the current party state, I don't think they really value those relationships as much as they did in the past, mostly because of the power dynamic between the People's Republic of China and the places that they are making these high interest loans with, like Pakistan and Indonesia and Malaysia. They, they don't need those interlocutors anymore. And they don't need to pretend that they're benevolent supporters of Islam. Things are pretty grim right now for Muslims living within the boundaries of the People's Republic of China. You did a lot of interesting archival work for this project. Could you talk about that? Are you allowed to go back to China? I haven't tried in a little while, so um, that could be a problem in the future. Although even if I was allowed to go back to China, I don't even know if there would be anything, any research to do there. So I have done extensive research in the People's Republic. I also did extensive research in Taiwan in the Guomindang or KMT or GMD archives. Spent a lot of time in Japan. So after the war was over, the Waseda University in Tokyo inherited all of the uh, collections of all of the military-sponsored Japanese Islamic associations. And so that whole collection is at Waseda University, as well as at the Japanese diplomatic archives. I did work at NARA and at Q. NARA is the National Archives of the United States and Q in Britain. And then a couple of my colleagues who've heard about my project and have sent me certain things. So some of those sources about tea were sent to me by one of my colleagues who works on North Africa. And he was like, why do these Japanese guys keep coming up in my archives when he was working in Morocco? <laughs> so yeah, it's a collaborative project, long time in the making, lots of different archives. 
I don't want to sort of be someone who glorifies going to many different countries and visiting different archives, but you do get this very granular sort of story the more places you get to go. Before we go, Kelly, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but just in terms of uh, next projects, I know that we had briefly discussed legacies and particularly that of the Cold War. I'm wondering how does your next project kind of continue to tell the story? So tentatively, my next project is called Islam and Politics in the East Asian Cold War. And I'm going to look at the ways that the People's Republic of China and a nationalist government in exile in Taiwan, as well as post-occupation Japan, how they sort of maneuvered their relationships with new post-colonial Muslim states, nation states, probably up until 1973 when the oil crisis took place, or maybe until when the UN Security Council seat went from belonging to the Republic of China to the People's Republic of China, because that really shifted a lot. So stay tuned. Ten years down the road, I'll probably be finished. (laughs) That book might come out. (laughs) Well, we're excited for it. And in ten years, the Ajahn podcast will still be going, so you can come back and uh, talk about that book, too. Sounds great. I look forward to it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kelly, for this wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you guys today. For our listeners... That was Dr. Kelly Hammond, Assistant Professor of East Asian History at the University of Arkansas. She was speaking to us about her book, China's Muslims and Japan's Empire, published by UNC Press in 2020. As always, if you're interested in this conversation, if you have a burning desire to comment, please write to us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we'll continue the conversation there. Until next time.